This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This episode is episode 135, entitled The Miller-Smith Debate on Jesus' Preexistence, First and Second Rebuttals. On Sunday, August 16th, 2020, I participated in a debate on the topic of whether Jesus Christ consciously preexisted his birth. I dialogued with Mr. Eric Miller, who affirmed the statement, while I denied that Jesus consciously pre-existed his birth. You can listen to the debate in its entirety on YouTube, and the link to this YouTube video is in the description of this podcast, and a link is also in the show notes. Feel free to share this debate video with your truth-seeking friends. In this episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will listen to the next portion of the debate that we began to enjoy in last week's episode, looking this time at the first and second rebuttals. Mr. Miller begins, and I will follow after him. Let me offer some insider comments to you listeners of the podcast before we listen to the rebuttals. We both respond to our opening statements and offer some concerns with our partner's position. I noted in his opening statement that there were 10 passages that he mentioned. Four of them actually fall under the category of wisdom Christology. So I knew that wisdom Christology is something that I needed to strongly address. This is why I led in my first rebuttal with the point that I made in regard to wisdom Christology. I felt that that was something that I needed to address first and foremost. It became clear as the debate went on that the nature of how the New Testament authors understood Jesus in regard to personified wisdom would become a major area of contention. And, of course, it was. I was also unable to ascertain what Jesus actually was in his pre-human, pre-existent form, according to Mr. Miller's view. So I wanted to ask about that. I actually had to ask for clarification on what Jesus was prior to his birth quite a few times within this debate. You'll also note that I had to come back to the language of all alone and by myself as it is portrayed in Isaiah 44:24, which was a passage that I started out with in my opening statement. I felt that the language of Isaiah 44:24 with the language of all alone and by myself in regard to Yahweh creating was pretty clear and unambiguous but I felt that my dialogue partner brushed this aside a little too easily. And I 
do think that I responded to all of the 10 passages that Mr. Miller opened with in his opening statement. And I wanted to really make sure that I responded to each of them so that I would not open myself up to some criticism for ignoring his points. However, in this debate, time was not a luxury. So I was only able to briefly respond to some of them. I am thinking of doing some future episodes of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast on some of those points that I feel do deserve a lengthier response. So please look forward to those episodes. Before we listen to both of our first and second rebuttals, I wanted to again thank Eric Miller for a respectful debate, and I wanted to thank Brandon Duke for serving as moderator. I enjoyed our time together, and I would happily work again with these two gentlemen. So without further ado, let's listen to the rebuttals of our debate on Jesus' preexistence. Okay, Eric, sounds like we've got you. Um, You'll have 10 minutes whenever you're ready to begin. Okay, awesome. Uh, I guess we'll just begin at the uh, top of the case. You recall that I said I was going to be defending two contentions uh, this evening. First is that uh, Jesus did not begin to exist at his birth, but came into existence at a point prior uh, to his uh, conception in the womb of Mary. And the second contention is that there are no good reasons to think that uh, Jesus did not have a conscious personal preexistence. Um, I want to thank Dr. Smith for that very engaging presentation, and I'm going to start at the begin, uh, top of this case and uh, see where we go from there. So first of all, he gave an argument that said that uh, Jesus was not present um, at any point uh, in the Old Testament. Now, of course, um, I gave several arguments uh, to show that that uh, was not the case, and I don't expect Dr. Um, Smith to respond to them in his opening statement. We're going to see what he had to say about them um, in his uh, rebuttal speech, but I just want to uh, run through them again so you can uh, get an idea of where I was coming from. Uh, one was that Jesus existed as the rescuer and destroyer of Israel. That was from Jude. Jesus was a messenger of the covenant. And Malachi, Jesus was a spiritual rock with the uh, Israelites um, in the desert. Uh, Jesus was a preexistent Messiah deliverer in Micah. Jesus was a spirit in the prophets. And Jesus was the glory that Isaiah saw. So these are actually just several places uh, that we can see Jesus very active and present in the Old Testament, uh, besides the fact of creation. Um, Dr. Smith mentioned many arguments about uh, how uh, God being alone and being by himself. But here's the tricky thing. When we're talking about absolute statements like that, we have to make sure we qualify them in a particular context. What do you mean when God was alone? Were there no angels? (laughs) Was there no matter? Was there no nothing? What's he talking about? Well, if you look specifically at the examples that he gave, he's usually talking about uh, false gods, okay, so it's a, he's talking, speaking rhetorically in contrast to the false gods that the Israelites are following, saying, listen, I was here, and I did this, and none of those things that you made with your hands were here with me when that happened. Uh, it wasn't trying to intend to say that there was nothing else literally with God when these things happened. Probably, and I would say the most, uh, and I'll just admit, the most difficult passage um, uh, that I hope we'll be able to get into is when God talks about spreading out uh, the heavens uh, by himself. Uh, he was alone. He didn't do it with anybody else. Well, wouldn't that necessarily exclude Jesus? Well, it's interesting because the Bible says that God alone works wonders. But did anybody else work wonders in the Bible? 
Did God ever work wonders through anybody in the Bible? Well, the answer to both those questions is yes. God used a mediator, but God was the principal cause of the wonders that were worked. In the same way, God can speak about, I stretched out the heavens by myself. Yeah, this, this is something that I did. And yet, that doesn't exclude the use of a mediator. We just have to look at it in context. We have to understand the concept of mediation that we see in the Hebrew Scripture. Um, there was another passage that he cited in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. I absolutely agree with that. The full revelation of who Jesus Christ is is given to us in the Testament Scriptures about 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ was born. But the fact of being a God now speaking to us uh, through his Son in these last days, it's not the same thing as saying that the same person did not exist before the last days. Two very, very different claims. That's not what Hebrew is saying. He's saying that he is now speaking to us as the final prophet, um, uh, the final and greatest prophet to come in a long line of prophets that God had sent previously. Um, Dr. Smith talks a lot about um, descendancy, and I'm going to go ahead and kind of wrap it up in his argument about um, the genealogies and the um, uh, begetting. So it's important to understand that uh, within Greek, now the idea of pre-existence within Christianity did not come from uh, Greek mythology, okay? But within uh, the Greek mindset, there was a concept of pre-existence. There are many people who believe that um, uh, people pre-existed their souls. Let me give you uh, a uh, quote from uh, Origen. This is what he says. Um, but to arrive at a clear understanding on these matters, we ought to first to inquire after this point whether it is allowable to suppose that they are living and rational beings then in the next place when their souls came into existence at the same time with their bodies or seemed to be anterior to them. I, for my part, suspect a spirit was implanted in them from without. Now, I don't agree with Origen on that, but Origen thought that spirits were preexistent. But didn't you think that people were born? Didn't the, Jew, didn't the, the Greeks, who, generally speaking, thought that souls preexisted, think that people were actually born? Well, of course they did. And they didn't have any contradiction in using words like ginao to describe birth, or just talking about birth generally, while also believing that spirits preexisted. So then it, it would seem difficult for me to understand how you can make an argument from the Greek that there cannot be a Christian idea of the preexistence of Jesus and also understanding that he is a descendant and is born. This is not contradictory at all. What it is is an overreading of a word. It's, what you, it's what's called too clever by half. Uh, we're not going to be able to determine this debate by deciding what does ginao mean. We're going to have to actually look at the passages in Scripture that speak about preexistence. Um, what about this idea of notional preexistence? I don't have any idea. With, I don't have any problem with notional preexistence. Um, we're foreknown as Christians, uh, and um, uh, Christ was also foreknown. Um, I was going to say this, but uh, because he mentioned First Peter five twenty, um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, mention a point that I had with regards to that. Um, yes, my argument in First Peter doesn't depend on whether or not. Um, Jesus uh, pre-existed in verse 20. I'm making my argument from verses 11 through 12. Um, but there is an interesting argument. Let me see if I can find my brief here. An interesting argument from uh, First uh, Peter 1.20 that actually suggests that Christ had um, a literal pre-existence. Um, let me see if I can find my notes on that. 
Well, I think I'm just going to come back to when uh, Dr. Smith responds to you. Okay, so this is a spoiler. <laughs> I'm going to come back to when Dr. Smith responds to my argument on uh, First Peter. But for now, I'm just going to cede that argument. I'm going to cede that I agree that there is such a thing as notional preexistence, and that just stands along the actual preexistence that Jesus had. Um, let's talk about the name. Um, uh, Dr. Smith talks about the name of the Messiah existing, not the Messiah. Um, but I don't know why Dr. Smith thinks that way, because there are in, um, other scholars who directly contradict him on this point. Um, for example, uh, here's Carhart and Gordon who say, compare the naming of the Son of Man before the sons and signs were created in First Enoch 48.3. While the Tarsons speak of the name of the Messiah as preexistent, this does not necessarily exclude the idea of the Messiah's personal preexistence. If First Enoch 48.1-6 is anything to go by. Um, and their argument is that by the naming may bring the thing into existence or simply imply that it was already in existence, just like God gives each star a name in Isaiah 46. Um, so I don't think that argument really works. Um, the idea of, of um, Jesus being the embodiment of God's wisdom, can I ask how much time I have? Yeah, you've got uh, two and a half minutes. Cool beans. Okay. Um, with this idea of uh, Jesus being the embodiment of God's wisdom, again, we're going to have to get into these specific passages where Dr. Smith thinks that's working out and see whether the authors themselves mean by speaking of Jesus as the embodiment of God's wisdom that that necessarily excludes preexistence because there's no logical contradiction between the two of them. You can think that Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom, Jesus is, is God's wisdom, without also uh, advancing um, your own theological prerogatives and thinking that Jesus preexisted. For example, in Colossians, um, which is a wisdom text that people often tend to go to, it says that all creation was made for Jesus. Okay, This is something that goes far beyond any kind of wisdom Christology. But there it's present, and Paul's using it in, in Colossians. Why? Because Paul was the master of his content. He was not, and I'm not saying that's what Smith is saying this, but he was not a slave or beholden to other ideas or concepts that people have about wisdom or anything else. So we have to look specifically to see whether by wisdom Christology he meant to exclude Jesus' personal preexistence. Um, See, this is why you write clearly, because <laughs> I'm reading my notes, and there's oh, one last thing that I think he responded, that he mentioned that I'm, uh, I, I can't read what my uh, um, handwriting is in that. Uh, he spoke about the name and the embodiment of God's wisdom, and, um, well, we'll see if we can get to it in a little time, but uh, for now I'm going to end it there. All right, thank you, Mr. Miller. All right, Dr. Smith, you have 10 minutes to respond when you are ready. Hey, thanks for that. And uh, I appreciate your engagement, uh, Mr. Miller. Um, you gave me a lot of passages to respond to uh, in 10 minutes. I think you gave me like 10, pass or 10 points in 10 minutes. Um, and so there's no way I can do justice to that. Um, but, but I'm gonna just make the best that I can with the time that I have. And then Brandon, when I get to that point, just, just kind of cut me off or wave your hands or something. Okay, so um, obviously I'm, I'm responding to his opening statement, but there are a lot of things that I would want to respond to in regard to, to his first rebuttal. Um, but for, well, let, let's, let's talk about wisdom Christology. Let's just make sure we know what's going on here, okay? So the, uh, I think he, he admitted that, that wisdom Christology exists in the New Testament, okay? And so they're saying, their New Testament writers are saying that Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, okay? They didn't qualify wisdom and say it's something different than what is in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, you have the noun wisdom, the noun chokmah, 149 times in the Old Testament. And in not a single one of those instances is wisdom a conscious 
separate person alongside God. In fact, 61% of those occurrences of the noun wisdom occur in books of poetry. And how do we read things in poetry? We read them metaphorically. We read them poetically. Okay. And so we could see like in Proverbs, we could see that God creates the world through his wisdom, not a conscious person. It's his wise interaction. It's his understanding. It's his knowledge. And yet all of the things that are said about wisdom in the book of Proverbs get embodied later in the book of Proverbs in chapter 31 into actual Persian women that lived in history. And so the, the passage about the, the, uh, the strong woman or the capable woman in Proverbs 31 has about 11 or 12 uh, descriptions of her that were formerly said of Lady Wisdom. That's, that's incarnation, that's embodiment. But we're not going to say that those women literally pre-existed their birth as the mediator of creation. That's obviously not what, what is being said there. And, and the commentators actually agree on this. They're saying this is incarnation, but it's the incarnation of a personification. Same thing in regard to word. Okay, uh, obviously the Gospel of John regards Jesus as the embodiment of God's word. And in 1,455 occurrences of the Hebrew word devar, and I know because I've looked up every single one of them, it took me like 22 days, okay? And not one of those occurrences does the word refer to a conscious person alongside God. It is something spoken. It is a matter. It is a command from God. And sometimes, as I've demonstrated, it is personified. But personifications are not conscious persons. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take very, very seriously what the entire Bible has to say on these particular points. And I'm assuming that the New Testament writers are drawing on these passages in that way. So with that in mind, um, word and wisdom, by the time of the writing of the Gospel of John, are basically near synonyms. Okay, this was demonstrated in Wisdom of Solomon chapter 9 and verse 1, which is written around the year 40. AD, where it says that God created all things with his word, God created all things with his wisdom, okay? So God's word and God's wisdom both function as the mediator of creation. We can see that uh, Genesis 1-3, we can see that in Proverbs 3-19, okay? Um, and so to say that Jesus is the embodiment of word or the embodiment of wisdom means that Jesus could, he, he sees his own self as the continuation of God's personified speech, meaning the word, and God's personified, wise interaction with creation, okay? Those are poetic ways of talking about things, but that's what the New Testament writers are doing. So when Jesus says in John 17, 5, that he, uh, he, he talks about the, the, the glory that he had before the world was, well, that's because he's speaking as an extension of wisdom, as wisdom's embodiment, because there are a variety of passages, both in Proverbs and Sirach and Wisdom of Solomon, to where glory is something that wisdom had. And so Jesus continues to speak in that particular way. And so once we understand that the opening 18 verses of John's gospel has already defined the human Jesus as the embodiment of God's personified word and God's personified wisdom, then since that personification is not an actual person, then it's not actual pre-existence. To say that you're the embodiment of a, of a personification does not give you real pre-existence. It gives you notional pre-existence. Now, Mr. Miller already admitted that Colossians 1 uh, deals with wisdom Christology, and that is what every single commentator on Colossians has to say. And so what uh, the writer does there, I say it's Paul, uh, is that he takes all of these things that were formerly said about wisdom, and now he says them about Jesus. I, I do want to make a, a clarification, though. Uh, Colossians 1.15 does not say, by him, all things were creation. The Greek is in, ofto. All things were, were created in him, Okay. In, the, in that dative case, which is what you see in Proverbs 3.19, that God created with his wisdom. It's used in the dative case in the Septuagint. Or in 
Uh, Psalm 100, what's it, 139? That passage escapes me. That's okay. Uh, but in, in, in the uh, later Psalms, it says that God created all things uh, with his wisdom. So the things that were formerly said about wisdom are now being said about Christ. Now, uh, I think the key to understanding Paul's wisdom Christology is actually a passage that we've already described here, and that is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, okay, where the rock that followed them was Christ. And so I want to know, is Jesus a pre-existent rock? Is that the conclusion that we're supposed to draw? Is, is Jesus, did Jesus pre-exist as a piece of rubble? Is that really what Paul is saying? No, because in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, in verse 6, now these things happened as examples. And in Greek, it's the word types. Okay? Paul is speaking typologically. And then he tells us again in verse 11, now these things happen to us as an example, using the adverb for typology, um, typikos. So Paul's argument that the rock that gave this water to the Israelites is now Christ, Paul's argument there is typological, not a direct connection. And so we have to interpret that typologically. Now, we also have to interpret that phrase uh, within its context, because uh, prior to Paul writing that, there were three different authors that described what that rock was. And so look at what these authors are saying. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 11, and verse 4, says, When they were thirsty, they called on you, Lady Wisdom, and the water given them out of the flinty rock, and from the hard stone a remedy for their thirst. Okay, so what was that water? It was wisdom. Philo, it says in allegorical interpretation, chapter 2, verse 86, that the abrupt rock is the wisdom of God. And Sirach 15, verse 3, says that she, wisdom, will feed them with the bread of learning and give them the water of wisdom to drink. So the contemporary way that people were understanding that rock in the wilderness was that it was lady wisdom. And what Paul says is that actually, since wisdom is now embodied in Christ, we can now typologically say that that woman wisdom rock is now Christ, but his interpretation method is typology. And so we have to take that seriously. So if we know that Paul can regard things formally said about wisdom in regard to Christ now, and that his way of interpreting his hermeneutical method is typology by his own words, then we could take that to Colossians and we can see all of these things that were all formally said about wisdom are now being said about Jesus. And the way that we interpret that is by Paul's own admission, typological. Okay. We can see the same thing in the opening verses of Hebrews. Okay. Um, we're we're uh, through, uh, through the son, all things were made. And then in verse three, it says that Jesus is the representation of, uh, of, of, God's, of God's image, of, of the radiance of God's glory. But it uses this very rare Greek noun, apavgasma, which only was used in any other context, guess what, in reference to Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom is God's radiance. And then the other things about saying that he upholds things with the power of his glory, and he sits at God's right hand, all four of those things, God creates through wisdom, God's wisdom is the radiance, uh, God's wisdom upholds things with uh, the word of her power and sits at God's right hand. All of those things were formerly said about wisdom. And now the writer of Hebrews, who also has a wisdom Christology, is now saying those things about Jesus. And so we have to interpret wisdom Christology uh, very carefully there. And again, every single commentator on the book of Hebrews admits this point that is talking about wisdom Christology. Uh, let's do John 8:58. Okay. Uh, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. Uh, let's, and, and the phrase I am 
needs to have a predicate, I am he, I am the Messiah, which was formally said in John uh, 4.26, that I who am speaking to you am he, meaning the Messiah, and that's how it's used throughout the, uh, the conversation there in chapter 8. But there's something interesting in the Greek, because to just say I am, I could just use the verb imi. But whenever in Greek you also include the pronoun prior to the verb, okay, it's there for emphasis. He's not just saying I am he, he is saying I am he. Prior to Abraham, this Messiah that you're thinking about, I am that Messiah. Just as we demonstrated, the Jews believed that the name of the Messiah was already spoken from creation. Jesus is saying, I am the name of that Messiah that was prior to Abraham. That's all the time that I have. I wish I had more time to, to go through the rest of those passages. All right. Thank you, thank you Dr. Smith. And Eric, let me get your audio going again on your phone. And you will have six minutes for your second rebuttal once you are ready. Okay, all right, perfect. All righty, um, so I want to start with some of the general comments that uh, Dr. Smith made about wisdom Christology. Um, he says, well, we want to take seriously what the whole Bible has to say about wisdom Christology. I think that's absolutely um, uh, what we should do. And, but I don't think that Dr. Smith is making the point he wants to make when he keeps saying that all commentators agree that wisdom Christology is in Hebrews or Colossians. I would agree with that. And yet all commentators don't deny preexistence. So what do those, what do those scholars and commentators see that Dr. Smith is, uh, I don't want to say it's not seen because that sounds rude, but why do they differ with Dr. Smith on this point? Um, all commentators do not agree that wisdom Christology uh, contradicts um, uh, pre-existence, and yet all the commentators agree that wisdom Christology is present in these passages for the reasons that I'm saying, because they understand that the authors of the New Testament have the right to take concepts from other places, whether it be the Old Testament or anywhere else, and develop them further and make their own points. And my point is one of those developments is the pre-existence of Christ, which is why when you read so many of these passages, it looks like uh, it is talking about the pre-existence of Christ on the surface. Um, he says that they didn't, they didn't qualify it, um, uh, that you know, it was something different in the Old Testament, but I gave a specific example where they said that they, they did, and that was that all things were created for Christ, where in Proverbs 8 does it say that all creation was made for uh, Lady Wisdom. Um, the other uh, uh, innovation would be itself pre-existence. That's the difference. We're looking at these passages and not starting and saying, well, okay, there, Lady Wisdom, which I will admit, by the way, there are commentaries who do not think that... Um, that uh, Lady Wisdom was not um, pre-existent or was not a conscious uh, uh, apparition. Some people do think it was actually talking about Christ. I'm not arguing that, but there are different people who believe that. Um, but my point is that when you look at these uh, passages straight on, they seem to be implying pre-existence. And unless we go to the text and say, well, they can't be saying that because wisdom Christology doesn't allow it, there's no reason, prima facie, to say, oh, no, he is actually talking about the pre-existence of Christ. Um, Let's talk about, uh, he mentioned a couple passages. Um, how about, let's talk about First First uh, Corinthians 10.4 uh, with the word. Well, he talks about, um, it's a type. The rock is a type. Um, no, the rock is not identified as a type in First Corinthians 4. The rock is not identified as a type of anything. In fact, the way the watch which Paul uses the word tupos in verse 6, it's in terms of an example. And all the examples he gives, which are supposed to keep us from desiring evil things, are from verses 5 to 11 after he talks about the rock. So the rock, the spiritual food and drink, the baptism, these are not types. The types come after 
um, that verse, or even if you want to argue it before, because I saw some commentators that argued that it was before, the rock still isn't a type. It's the events that took place that were the examples to keep us from desiring evil things. So it's not a type. Um, he mentions Philo, uh, and Paul drawing from Philo. I have no problem with Paul drawing from Philo. Paul also probably drew from other rabbinical sources, because if you notice in Exodus 17 and Numbers 22, which talks about the rock, uh, that the rock is never mentioned as being moving. And yet Paul says the rock followed them. Where did he get that from? Well, if you look in um, uh, contemporary rabbinic writers, it talks about a moving water source. One talks about a moving well. Okay, well, Paul didn't say it was a well. He says it was a rock. But he does take um, from other writers in saying that it was moving. He agrees with them. So if Paul can develop the rabbinic sources, why can he not develop, develop the um, uh, uh, wisdom sources and say, yes, Christ is also preexistent? The answer is yes, he can. Um, I want to uh, talk about Colossians, and you mentioned the um, use of in, and uh, I want to read you a quote, so bear with me um, regards to that uh, question. Um, this is on a commentary by G.K. Uh, Beale. Perhaps relevant to Colossians 1.16 is Ephesians 2.15, or that he, Christ, should create two in himself. Um, he certainly designates that here in Atu, Octo designates a sphere within Christ which he created. But the fact that Christ is doing the creation shows that he is the agent of creating Jew and Gentile in himself. It is thus better to take the phrase Colossians 1.16 to be a thicker reference that includes Christ both as the agent of creation and the sphere in which all things were created. The translation would be something like with respect to all things created, but the reference would be mainly to both agency and sphere. So here, there's no contradiction between the two. We, again, we have to be so careful to not overread, uh, especially pronouns in poetry. <laughs> these are talking about two different things. They're talking about in in terms of the sphere, but also Christ being the uh, agent of creation. Uh, he goes on to say, the idea of agency uh, may be more focused in the phrase about the old creation in 116 is a parallel with the phrase expressed as a part of the new creation. As noted in 115, that he is the sovereign agent of creation also further indicates that the affirmations about Christ in verse 15 focus on his supremacy over all creation. So again, there's, we don't have to pick. It's a false choice. Um, what about the rock? Was Christ, I did mention that before. Um, what about the rock? Was Christ really a, a rock mass? Okay, well, was Jehovah really a burning bush? No, Jehovah was behind the burning bush in the sense of uh, he, his, uh, he made himself as to appear as though the bush was burning, but he was speaking from the bush. In the same way, the rock was Christ. Christ was the source of the water that came from the rock. In the same way that Christ is the source of the spiritual nourishment that we get today, and he was the source of the nourishment that was given to uh, the Corinthians. Um, let's talk about before Abraham was, I am. So... About that point, um, let me see here. Ah, yeah, so he wants Mr. to say Mr. Miller, that... I'm sorry I to am... interrupt, but that's time. All righty. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> sure. All right. Dr. Smith, whenever you're ready, you also have six minutes. Okay. Uh, and again, thank you for that. Uh, there's just... I feel like there's so many things that we would like to talk about. I'm sure the audience would like clarification on a lot of things. I just, I, I kind of wish we had some more time uh, to deal with that. Um, and maybe we could deal with that. Um, I, I kind of, in, instead of wanting to answer some things, I kind of want to really kind of push back on a couple of things. I, um, I'm, I'm really struggling and maybe I just, I just don't understand. I'm not listening very well, uh, but I, I'm trying to understand what is it that Jesus was 
prior to being human. And I, you know, I've, I've heard a variety of things. I, I, you, you cited um, John 12 uh, in reference to, you, you suggested that Isaiah 6 is there. Does that mean that Jesus is Yahweh? Um, I'm wondering if that is. I, that, that would be very troubling, okay? Um, you, you seem to suggest that uh, uh, in 1 Peter 1, that uh, the, the spirit of Christ is actually some sort of pre-existent spirit. Is that, is that, is that uh, the life force of Jesus? Because in First in Peter, the, the spirit there is the spirit that it's God's Holy Spirit that inspires the prophets and inspires the scriptures. So is the pre-existent Jesus the Holy Spirit? I want to know what the, I just, I'm having a hard time figuring out like who Jesus is based on your, your reconstruction. So I think it'd be helpful for me to, to um, and, and for the audience, if you could, clarify that at, at some particular point. Um, let's, uh, back in Isaiah 44, 24, let me tell you, when it says all alone by myself with singular pronouns and with singular verbs, we all know what that means. All alone and by myself means no one else was there. All alone and by myself, no one else is there. It's not God up there with, with Jesus. Okay, that, that's not what all alone and by myself means. So that's, um, you know, and yet we can also say that God created with his wisdom and God created with his word. And there's no contradiction there because word and wisdom are not conscious persons alongside God. They're personifications of God's wise utterance and God's wise interaction with the world. Okay. Um, gosh, there's so many other things I want to, I want to talk about there. Let's talk, let's talk about Jude 5. Um, you know, people need to know Jude 5 is, is textually unstable. Okay. There's a, there's, a, there's a difference in manuscript, and I think it's, it's um, I was actually surprised that, that you, you made that particular argument um, on something that is not even very textually stable. Uh, I know some people have, have argued um, recently that the, the original reading uh, is still Jesus, but it is interesting that in Jude, every single time that the author wants to talk about Jesus, it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Um, and yet, in that variant, we just have the word Jesus. It actually makes it look suspect. Okay, because you would think that if the original reading was in reference to Jesus, that it would say Jesus Christ like every other occurrence of Jesus Christ elsewhere in the book of Jude. Okay, and so it, it makes a lot more sense that the original reading would be Lord and that it was changed to Jesus by some eager scribes that wanted to affirm preexistence. Um, and there are some good scholarly sources that continue to emphasize that particular point. So I, I don't know how, how much of an argument you can make on something that is textually uh, unstable. Um, you know, the, the Malachi reference, um, you're not gonna find uh, Old Testament scholars that say this refers uh, to Jesus. Uh, and in fact, um, it's, it's, it, you admit it, it's tricky. You're saying there's three persons that are involved in Malachi, uh, the first uh, two verses of chapter three. Um, that's kind of, uh, that's strange. It's, it seems that the rep that Jesus talks about it um, he refers it to John the Baptist. Um, and of course, um, what does messenger mean? Well, even Malachi's name, um, which in Hebrew means my messenger. I'm wondering, is, is there a play on words with Malachi being uh, uh, the prophet that's going on there? I think there's some, there's some more work that could be done there, but there's no New Testament passage that says that, uh, that Jesus is the person referenced in Malachi. Like that's, that's not stated in the New Testament. Uh, Micah chapter five and verse two, where the, uh, where the, the king uh, his goings forth are from long ago. The Hebrew phrase there is yomei alam, and you could look at every single occurrence of that phrase um, in, in the Old Testament, and it never refers to preexistence like back before the heavens and the earth. In fact, in Micah, the book of Micah itself, it uses the same phrase. Let's see. 
It's like the, uh, the, last, uh, the very last verse in chapter 7 and verse 20, where God will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. That's not like pre-existence. It just means like, you know, something that happened a long time ago, okay? So that argument, that argument's really been dropped. It's just not something that the Hebrew phrase actually means. And again, you could, you could look at how it's used in Micah. You could look at how it's used uh, in the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and it's not something that refers to uh, pre -existence. It's just the origins of something uh, were talked about a long time ago. Okay. Uh, what else do I want to talk about? Uh, John 12, 41, um, that, uh, that Isaiah talked about the glory. Well, uh, the phrase glory uh, does show up in Isaiah, but it shows up in Isaiah 52 and 53 about the glorification of the suffering servant who is going to die. Um, I, I think that's, that's the connection of glory that's being used there. I think that's a much better reading than to say that uh, John 12, 41 is referring to the glory of Yahweh as if Jesus is Yahweh from Isaiah chapter 6. That's a problematic reading. Um, again, I, I think 1 Peter 1 is talking about um, the spirit concerning Christ, the spirit of Christ, using the genitive case there to say uh, the spirit concerning Christ. Um, and Philippians 2 uh, talks about, uh, have this attitude among yourself, which was in Christ Jesus, which is the human historical Jesus, not a preexistent person. So um, that's probably all the time I have for that. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we listen to the cross-examination and the closing statements. Of course, I will be offering my insider commentary and reflections during that episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support the podcast for absolutely free by simply sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, by subscribing on iTunes, and by writing an honest review. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Special thanks to Dustin Williams for editing and post-production of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, you folks, please take care.